The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So to refresh your memory, where in the world are we in the Gospel of Luke? The Gospel of Luke, written by the Apostle Paul's associate and friend and probably his personal medical doctor and missionary companion, uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, wrote that book in about 61, 60 A.D., 30 years, 25 years after Jesus died and went into heaven and gave a testimony of the, the ministry of Jesus Christ and we call it the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the four Gospels. So we're going through that book. We start at the very beginning. We're actually almost halfway through the Gospel of Luke. So today we're going to find ourselves in Luke chapter 11. That's where we left off. The, so we're about, if you say that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, and if I were to ask you, and especially those of you who've grown up in the church, been Christians for 40, 50, 60 years, you probably know that Jesus' ministry is three and a half years. And if I were to ask you, how do you know it's three and a half years? Oh, that's a challenging question. Um, We think it's the gospel of John that gives us that information, where we have enough information from his gospel where we can figure out uh, that it was probably about three and a half years. Uh, John wrote in 90 AD. If we didn't have the gospel of John, we wouldn't know how long Jesus' actual public ministry was. Uh, But... Uh, thanks to the Gospel of John. Hence the beauty of those four Gospels, because you put them all together and it just gives this full-orbed, stereo-like picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ, giving us everything that we need to know that God wanted us to know. And Luke is one of those Gospels. In our English Bible, it's 24 chapters. We're about halfway through, and right now, if Jesus' ministry is three and a half years, we've covered at least the first two and a half years, maybe even more than that. And we've already seen in Luke chapter 1 through 9, that Jesus' main ministry for the first two and a half years of his life was in his hometown and home region up in the north in Galilee, not down where the temple was, where the Jewish headquarters was, where the Sanhedrin was, where the Jewish leaders were, down in Jerusalem, down in Judea, but no, up north. Go up north, go through Samaria, and then you get to Galilee, and then Nazareth Nazareth was in Galilee, and that's where Jesus grew up for 30 years. And so he did most of his ministry in Galilee, his hometown, and he went for two and a half years to town after town, the entire area, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, He finished that. He trained some disciples, 70 disciples that would go before him, 12 apostles, who would have a special mission in addition to some believing women following him wherever he went. And so we saw Jesus put in two and a half years of exhausted, thorough, comprehensive ministry, proclaiming the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news, which is me. That was Jesus' message. He's confirming this message by doing miracle after miracle after miracle everywhere he went to validate that he was the spokes person of God Almighty, of Yahweh, and he was doing miracles in an unprecedented manner. He's doing miracles that had never been done in the history of planet Earth, by the way. Restoring blindness to a man born blind, that had never been done, and so many others. So we've seen these miracles throughout the Gospel of Luke, and you would think that if someone's going around through town after town loving people, preaching the good news, 
caring for people, offering hope, offering eternal life, offering forgiveness of sin, offering protection from death and Satan himself, offering himself as the savior of the world, and validating all this with miracle after miracle and healing your family members and healing your friends and maybe even healing you, you would think that everyone would just completely with open arms embrace this man who claimed to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. We've seen already that sadly that is not the case. Think about that. It's, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty alarming. But this is the historical fact. So we're in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, and we've actually reached kind of uh, a, a pivot point and a nexus in terms of the ministry of Jesus where he changes his focus now. He was preoccupied for a good two and a half years of primarily reaching the masses, the crowds, getting the word out in his home region. He's done that, and now he's going to focus on his 12 apostles to prepare them because now we're looking at three to six months is all he's got left in the remainder of the book of Luke. So from chapter 11 today all the way to chapter 24, you're looking at about three to six months left. Jesus knows it's the end. He knows why he's here. He knows he was born to die. He knows he belongs to Yahweh. He knows he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He knows he's the coming Messiah. He knows he has one mission, and that was to die, to die for sin. That was his purpose. It's clear, crystal clear. And we saw that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it's accentuated there by, by Luke as the author, where having completed all these things, Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. In other words, he's wrapped up his two and a half ministry in Galilee, and he's fixed his eyes in Jerusalem. And one of the Gospels in the King James, it says he set his face like flint on Jerusalem. He was steadfast. He was focused. He will not be distracted. He knows what he's doing. No one can cause him to deviate from his mission, which is obedience to the will of the Father. And so for the next chapter 11 through the end of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus kind of meandering and crisscrossing back and forth. One last effort as he's going from actually down from Galilee, down to Jerusalem, down to the feast day down to the cross, down to death. And he's preaching the gospel all along the way. And he's got his 70 disciples with him, going ahead of him, knocking on doors to see where he's going to be welcome. He's got his 12 apostles with him as he continues to train them. He's got some faithful women with him who took care of him wherever he went, and then some other followers. And then there's a crowd of stragglers who are just fascinated, um, don't quite know the fullness of who Jesus is, but they like the miracles. They like the free food. That's cool. Maybe get more of that. So you got the fickle mob following him wherever he goes. So we're going to see that today in the passage we're looking at, where Jesus is, again, he's preaching, he's talking, he's doing a miracle. And again, once again, his audience, it is public, it's on full display, and you've got a mixed audience. So you get different responses to who Jesus is, to what Jesus said, and to what Jesus does. But he knows the Father's will is at hand. So I wanted to set that background just to bring us up to speed again. And the last message we had was the beginning of Luke chapter 11, which was on the Lord's Prayer where the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Lord Jesus, because the apostles in particular, they grew up Jewish. They grew up in the synagogues. They went to Saturday school. 
They had the Old Testament. That's about all they had. That was their life. And so they read the prayers of the Old Testament. They had parents who probably prayed. But more importantly, they had the influence of the synagogue leaders, scribes, Pharisees, maybe some Sadducees, who prayed, who were influential. They were the public models for Jewish religion in Jesus' day. And so the 12 apostles grew up watching that. And so they saw how the Jewish leaders prayed, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, routinely. How did they pray? Well, they prayed publicly. They prayed on street corners. They made a public spectacle when they made sure that there was a big crowd watching. They were proud of their prayers. They were arrogant about their prayers. They commended themselves to God through their prayers. They were hypocrites when they prayed. They weren't sincere. It's very religious. How do I know all that? Because that was Jesus' assessment of their prayers. So when Jesus comes along and chooses the 12 apostles and they're following him for two and a half years. Now they see that Jesus is different. He is a rabbi. He is a teacher. He's authoritative. He does miracles. He's a preacher. But he's not like one of them. His attitude is different. He's loving. He's compassionate. He also does miracles. He has authority like no one they've ever seen or known. But he has a unique prayer life. It's an impressive prayer life. It's a committed prayer life. It's a stellar prayer life. It's incomparable. They've never seen anybody pray like Jesus. And then Pastor Derek highlighted some Patterns of prayer in the book of Luke, the last time we were in Luke, where Jesus would routinely and regularly go out to pray and be by himself and be with the Father and pray for a long time, one-on-one intimately with the Father as a person talks to another person in, a, in the most intimate kind of relationship. And that's what prayer is. It's communication. It's conversation. It's not canned. It's not a mantra. It's not gimme, gimme, gimme. It's not self-centered. And the, the apostles picked up on that, and they said, wow, that's, you pray different, Jesus, teach us to pray. And so that was our last sermon. Jesus laid it out, well, here's how you need to pray. And it was life-changing for them. It's not mechanical, it's not ritual, it's not routine, it's not man-made tradition. This is like communication with your best friend. In addition to on reverence and worship, of the God of the universe that you can go to directly, direct access to this God named Yahweh. This is all probably unfamiliar to them. So that was our last sermon. So I, I encourage you, if you didn't hear the last sermon that Derek preached on Luke chapter 11, 1 and following, on how to pray like Jesus, if you either were not at church or you didn't get to see it online, go back and you got to watch it. It's powerful. After I listened to that sermon or watched it again for the second time on YouTube, you know what I wanted to do after I watched it? I wanted to pray. Actually, I felt a lot of things. Well, I felt guilty because I don't pray enough. And then I wanted to pray. And after, when I was done, I went and prayed. That's what the Word of God does, the living Word of God. If you're a child of God, it feeds your soul, it convicts you, it prompts you to action, right? And lo and behold, what we have tonight, we have a opportunity for our members uh, and regulars to get together for prayer once a month. So right here, I'll be hosting prayer from 6 to 7, and then we have a couple other satellites uh, where you can go to homes and pray. So I would invite all of you, if 
you're able and available to be at our once a t uh, month monthly prayer from 6 to 7 tonight. I'll be right here on the campus. would love to have you. It's a great time of fellowship. The main thing, what do we do? We pray. It's real simple. We go before the throne of grace and plead with God. We worship him. We ask forgiveness for sin. We ask him to continue to provide. We thank you for his ongoing provision. We ask for guidance and wisdom because we're so weak and feeble and frail. We plead with him. We beg for mercy. That's what we do when we pray. And you'll be blessed if you do. So tonight at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, come pray. If you're a member of this church, especially if you've been a member for any period of time, for a long period of time, you know, just a challenge for you as one of the elders and shepherds here, uh, do you go to prayer once a month routinely or regularly or one of your members as you are able? Or I guess a more specific question would be, what are you doing tonight at 6 o'clock? Are you going to prayer? I'm talking to the members now, our church family. Uh, are you going to prayer? If you're not, why? Well, if you've got to work, that's a totally legitimate excuse. You've got another obligation, that's totally legitimate. But if you have no excuses whatsoever or obligations and you're a member and your answer isn't, yes, I'm going to prayer tonight. I just, why? Why not? You'll be blessed. Uh, in the 15 years of being a pastor at this church, the one time where I feel comfortable getting up and making people feel guilty it is the members about prayer. Really? Because I need the same exhortation. Uh, and I guarantee you'll be blessed to be with the saints. So we plead before the throne of grace. So that's where we left off. Jesus just laying it out, teaching his disciples how to pray. And it's been a model for believers ever since for 2,000 years. So we're going to pick up in uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 and following. We'll go all the way down to verse 28. If you see it there, it is a it's a long section, <clears throat> 14 plus verses. If you read it, Jesus is talking about many different things. Some of it's very confusing. Guarantee if you read through that firsthand without just a cursory reading, you might have a lot of questions scratching your head. Whoa, what does that mean? What's that about? We need clarification. So to that end, let's search God's word together. Before we get to Luke chapter 11, follow along with me. If you have a Bible, let's, get, let's start in Exodus chapter 7. This will, I think this will help you answer a lot of those questions we're going to be confronted with in Luke 11 that seem a little obscure. Why did Jesus say that? What does that mean? Well, let's go back in time. Let's go to 1440 B.C. before Christ. God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, they've been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. They've been crying out to God for deliverance. To Yahweh. Yahweh hears their cry. And he's going to deliver them. He raises up a deliverer. His name is Moses. He's going to deliver his people. He's already made a personal covenant with them called the Abrahamic Covenant that they would be his people, that he would deliver them. He even told them ahead of time, by the way, you're going to be slaves for 400 years, but I'll come, I'll set you free. And he raises up Moses after 400 years of slavery, and they multiplied like crazy in the land of Egypt. They went there with about 72 people, 
and multiplied so that 400 years later, there are now in excess of maybe 2 million Israelites in Egypt who are enslaved by the Pharaoh of Egypt. God raises up Moses, who grew up in the Pharaoh's home for 40 years. And now God comes to him personally and basically says, Moses, I'm going to commission you to lead my people, to set my people free out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses resists because he feels inadequate. Who am I? I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. And God said, it's not about you. It's about me. I am that I am. I am the almighty, eternal, only God. I am your sufficiency, and you will do what I tell you, and I will lead the way. I'm the Savior, not you. That's God's answer. But he does raise up Moses to be a prophet and a deliverer and a leader of his people. So now we fast forward to chapter 7 of Exodus and follow along in verse 1. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Then Yahweh said to Moses, I don't know how this happened, just a voice out of, an audible voice out of heaven. Doesn't give the details, but the fact is, the God of the universe literally spoke to Moses on this occasion. This was not a hallucination. This is not fable. It's not a fairy tale. This is true history. This literally happened. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh. Literally, Moses, I make you God to Pharaoh. Isn't that a strange statement? God is not calling Moses God, but he's saying you're going to function in a capacity like God on my behalf to Moses the pagan, I mean to Pharaoh the pagan king. So you're going to represent me and your brother Aaron, he's going to be your prophet. Verse 2. Moses, here's what you need to do. You will speak. So that's what God means. God is the living God. God speaks. What are you going to do, Moses? Moses is going to speak for God. He's going to speak God's word. He's going to speak divine revelation. He's going to speak information that God gives him directly from heaven. The word of God. You shall speak all that I command you. Keep in mind that Jesus said this very same thing in the Gospel of John about himself. He said, I came to this earth and I speak only that which the Father has commanded me to speak. Imagine that. For 33 years, Jesus never said anything that was not first ordained by God the Father for him to speak. And God tells Moses, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh. Verse 3, God says, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. going to harden his heart. What does that mean? Well, he uses a synonym later. Uh, Pharaoh has a stubborn heart. Hardened heart, um, an unreceptive heart, a sinful heart, a rebellious heart, stubborn heart, unwilling to bow the knee to God, not going to listen to God. Or you hear what God says, you understand it, you even agree with it and say, but I'm not going to do that, or I don't care. That's what he means. You're going to speak the very words of God, and Pharaoh's response is he's going to harden his heart. And as a result, I'm going to do something. Uh, I'm going to multiply my signs, verse 3. I'm going to multiply my miracles. I'm going to allow you, Moses, to do signs and wonders. Key verse in verse 3. Uh, God called up Moses, and he was going to allow him to do signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. 
Why was Moses going to be allowed to do signs and wonders? He just turned the Nile River into blood. He's about to do ten plagues. He's about to cause frogs to invade the land, lice to come all over the land. All ten plagues. Miracles they've never seen before, right in front of their eyes. They're completely undeniable. They're true miracles. Only God can do them. These are called signs and wonders. And God allowed Moses to do signs and wonders, to do these miracles from heaven for one purpose, and that was to validate the word of God as true. Because anybody can get up and say, oh, I'm a prophet of God. And here's what God said. Well, then the Jew is like, well, then prove it. That was God's standard. I will validate my word. I will validate my truth with supernatural signs and wonders. That's why Moses did the ten signs and wonders, or the miracles, the plagues, to validate the truth that he was speaking. It came from God. And that's the pattern set throughout the entire Old Testament that carries over into the New Testament with Jesus, who was a Jewish teacher, a Jewish prophet, and claimed to be from God, actually claimed to be one with God, and he was empowered with signs and wonders and miracles to validate what he was saying was true. Signs and wonders. And even though you do, another key phrase in verse 4, even though you do signs and wonders and miracles that Pharaoh's never seen before, he's not going to listen to you. He's not going to sing. You know, this helps us in our evangelism or when we're praying for someone or sharing the truth with an unbeliever and we think in our mind naively that, boy, if this unbeliever uh, could only see a miracle, they would believe. If only, boy, if... If they could just see Jesus raise somebody from the dead today, they might believe. No, they won't. That isn't what saves people. Moses did miracles never seen before. Didn't convince Pharaoh. It had an impact on a lot of the Egyptian people. We know that later in the story. Some of them were scared to death. Some of them actually believed that Moses was from God. But Pharaoh? No, he was not convinced. By these miracles, chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh, by the miracles that I allow you to do. Then go to chapter 8, one of the ten plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that the dust may become and turn into lice. Turn into uh, swarms of lice is the Hebrew word. So Moses and Aaron turned the dust of the earth all over Egypt into lice instantaneously, swarms, and it attacked all the people in Egypt. Lice. All over their bodies, all over the animals. Absolutely devastating. Uh, the Pharaoh's magicians tried to replicate the miracle. They couldn't. Verse 18. And look at the miracle. Here's the response. So Pharaoh had his own sorcerers in his court. He had counselors. And then he had his own sorcerers of the occult who claimed to do miracles. Some of it was probably magic. But some of them, some of them, they probably could tap into the power of Satan himself and do supposed miracles. And they were feared. And Pharaoh would rely on these guys at times. Maybe looking at his horoscope. What does this next month have for me? These magicians, he's been working with them since he met Moses, all the way several chapters back. So Pharaoh's occultic magicians tried to replicate this miracle of, uh, or this plague of lice, and they couldn't. And here's the conclusion that these unbelieving sorcerer cultists came to, and they told Pharaoh the king. 
And keep in mind, when you're a counselor to the pharaoh or the king and you give them bad news, it might be off with your head. The king doesn't want to hear bad news. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this miracle that Moses did, this miracle is the finger of God. This miracle is the finger of God. It is undeniable. Because early on, they kind of mocked Moses. Early on, show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Prove it. And then when he actually did a couple miracles, they mocked him again as they tried to replicate it. Here they have no answer. Other than it's, it is undeniable, this miracle, this sign is the finger of God. What is the finger of God? They didn't even know God personally, but they did know there is a creator. He is awesome, and he's doing something amazing, and he's doing it through this guy, through Moses, and we cannot explain it. They're probably in a fear. They're probably in a panic. And they can't help themselves but tell the truth to their boss, the king, Pharaoh. I just wanted you to highlight that key phrase there. This is the finger of God. What is the finger of God? That is the God of the universe actually doing something and intervening and interceding in our human affairs. God is invisible. He is infinite. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. He's not an old man up in heaven sitting, holding a cane in a chair, helpless. It's not the God of the universe. He is transcendent. He is awesome. He is holy. He's all-powerful. But he is a spirit, and he is invisible. And critics and skeptics and atheists like to say, well, I don't believe in God, and if God was true, then show him to me. I haven't seen him. That's just completely foolish. We see the work of God, the evidence of God, the results of God, the finger of God. What's the finger of God? It's a metaphor speaking of um, an undeniable act of God. The only source is from God. God did it, but he did it through a human agent. He did it through uh, a mediator, some medium here on the earth, whether it was an angel, a human being, Jesus himself, a prophet of God, a theophany. That's the finger of God. This is God truly moving. This doesn't happen on a regular basis throughout Biblical history, God intervenes on occasion at his sovereign will. And this was one of those occasions. This is the finger of God. It's undeniable. God is at work. And whenever you have a miracle going on, something intruding in our universe, at at that level of that supernatural nature, it's the Spirit of God at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, works in conjunction with the Father to accomplish his will. The Spirit of God works in conjunction with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to work his will. The Spirit of God was at work here, working through Moses to do this miracle. Okay, if you've got your Bible there, then flip forward real quick to Deuteronomy 18. So now, that was 1440 B.C. As Moses is about to set or lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, then he does. Through the ten plagues, Pharaoh lets them go, then they get up to the wall of the Red Sea, and then God parts the Red Sea through the Spirit of God, using Moses as a human agent. Two million Israelite Jews walk through the Red Sea, parted on dry ground, and then the sea closes down on Pharaoh, his chariots, and his armies, and 
wipes them out and kills them on the spot. And God rescues his people. God saves his people. God delivers his people. So the greatest act of salvation and deliverance in the Old Testament was the Exodus, where God delivered his people from the Egyptians. And that becomes uh, not only a metaphor, but the pattern of God's deliverance that will be accomplished in the New Testament through the next deliverer, who would be the Messiah, who comes for one purpose, to deliver his people. Fast forward from 1440 B.C. now to 1400 B.C. Moses has done this. He's led the people. Uh, Now they've been in the wilderness for 40 years, circling round and round because they're being disobedient. They're whining. They're complaining. Oh, take us back to Egypt. We liked it better there. We liked slavery. We liked the food. Moses is arrogant. My feet hurt. Who knows what they were saying, but they were complaining the entire time. And God judged them, disciplined them, said, you whiners, you're going to die in the desert, and then I'm just going to let your children go in. So that's what happened. Forty years passes by. Uh, Moses leads them up to the Jordan River where they're going to cross in to the promised land finally after 40 years. And Moses goes up on a mountain and he sees the beautiful promised land that God promised to Abraham in 2000 B.C. And God says, there it is, Moses. That's where the people are going to go. Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. You have fulfilled your mission. You're going to die here on a mountain. You don't get to go in. But thank you for your faithfulness. And Moses submitted to the will of God. But it's at, that, it's at this time, just before Moses leads Joshua to the promised land at the Jordan River, God gives this promise to his people after 40 years with Moses. Okay, you've seen Moses. I made him as God to you. He is a prophet. I speak to him face to face. He's one of the most humble men who's ever lived in the history of the world. He does my bidding. He is obedient. He's a man of God. He speaks for me, but there's more good news. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Here's what God said. The Lord God, verse 15, says this. I will raise up a prophet in the future, aside from Moses. I am going to raise up a prophet from among the countrymen like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Verse 19, it shall come about that um, whoever will not listen to my words, which he, the prophet, shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. When I send a prophet of God and he speaks, it is binding. You heard it, you're accountable. You can't say, yeah, but. Yeah, that's the word of God, but. That's rebellion. That's hardness of heart. That's stubbornness. That's what Pharaoh did. You're accountable. That's what that phrase means. I will require it of you. You know the truth. If you've heard the truth, you're accountable. It doesn't matter if you don't believe. You're accountable before God. That's what Jesus said to him who has been given much. Much shall be required. When I send a prophet in your midst, you better listen and you better embrace the truth and obey. That's what he's saying. Verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, so he's warning Israel, okay, uh, as you move forward going to the promised land, you're going to have all kinds of guys and ladies coming along saying that they're a prophet of God, they speak for me, they represent me, and then they're going to pass out the, the offering plate. And they're phonies. They are not of me. He just said, but I will raise up a legitimate prophet. So he's, this is a prophecy. He's warning them. I'm going to send you true prophets. I'm going to send you false prophets. What's the natural question? Well, how do we distinguish between the two? How do we know a false prophet from a true prophet? 
he tells us right here. This is the test of a true prophet. Verse 20, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, you know, this is not a legitimate prophet, and they do it in God's name. Yahweh says, thus says the Lord, Jesus said. Maybe they might even this day, these days be holding the Bible. That's what that means. They speak in the name of God. They speak in the name of truth. They speak in the name of Scripture, the name of Jesus, the name of Christianity. But they're illegitimate. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. So that's the warning. People are going to do it. Well, they shouldn't do this. They're going to do it. Speaking words that I didn't command him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods. That happens all the time. Allah said... And then here's what God says. That prophet shall die. Wow. That is alarming. That is shocking. That is severe. Well, yeah, exactly. And God's already said this. That was part of the Mosaic Code. Somebody gets up in in God's people and speaks falsehood in the name of either the true God or a false God and is exposed as a liar. He was to be executed by stoning to death. That's how serious this is from God's point of view. that prophet shall die, verse 21, and you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we distinguish between the two? Well, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, if it doesn't come true, then that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Remember when COVID started two years ago? You didn't have to go far on Christian television or YouTube. It was all over the place. All kinds of so-called prophets of Jesus getting up, making predictions about COVID. Or who was going to win the presidential election? Literally, some of them. Uh, Yeah, God told me in a dream that so-and-so is going to win the presidency. And that didn't happen. God told you that? I don't think so. Yeah, COVID is going to be over in two months. COVID is uh, God's wrath on America, and on and on. This is the end of the age. We are now in the tribulation because of COVID. So, uh, you know, just prophecy after prophecy in the name of Jesus from so-called Christian ministries, writing books, selling like hotcakes, number seven bestseller on Amazon, doomsday. So there was all kinds of this going on, but it didn't happen. We look back and say, no, very specific, didn't happen. The world didn't end on uh, June 1st, 2021. So that was a false prophecy. That was a liar. And God does not approve. And that thing was not spoken by God. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. But the one thing that, so all of this taken together, Emphasizing verse 18, I'm going to raise up a prophet for you. He says that twice. Moses, great prophet. But you, my people, just so you know, at some point in future history, I'm going to raise up the greatest prophet there ever was. And he is called the prophet with a capital P. Did you know that from that point on, 1400 B.C., all the way up until Jesus was born, uh, the great anticipation of believing Jews in the land of Israel those who knew their Old Testament, one of the things, they, would, they weren't just looking for the Messiah, they were also looking for the prophet with a capital P. They were looking for the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Every Jew knew this. 
prophecy like the back of their hand. And what's it going to be like? One more Old Testament passage. Uh, go to Isaiah 61. You can keep your finger in Isaiah 35. I'll read from there. Or I'll just start with Isaiah 35. Just listen to this verse. Fast forward from 1400 B.C. to now 1800 B.C. to 750 B.C. The, the days of Isaiah the prophet who ministered for 40 years, gave many prophecies. He talked about the coming Messiah. He talked about the coming prophet with a capital P. One of, the, one of the things about the Messiah when he came is he spoke for God and wouldn't just be a prophet of God and a teacher of God. But Isaiah said in Isaiah 9.6 that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's who this Messiah would be. That's why he has a capital P on the word prophet. God will become incarnate. What will he do? He's going to do a lot. Isaiah 35 verse 5 says that this Messiah who comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. There will be deaf people, people born deaf, people made deaf by a demon that this prophet, this coming Messiah, will heal. That is unprecedented. No one does this. No human can do this. No human medicine or technique can heal this. This is setting the standard high for the Jewish people. Very clear who you're supposed to be looking for when you're looking for the Messiah. In addition to the hundreds of other prophecies about him, by the way, he'll be born of a virgin. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will have his own star. He will be a son of David. He'll be from the tribe of Judah and on and on. He will do miracles, unprecedented miracles. And one of the miracles is, is he will be able to heal people who are deaf, who cannot hear. And as a result, many times they can't talk. The King James calls that dumb. It has nothing to do with your intellect. It just means you can't talk. You can't speak, probably because you're deaf. The Messiah will come and heal those kind of people. Isaiah 61 says about the Messiah, how is he going to do these miracles? He's going to do it by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the Messiah talking now prophetically. When I do come, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit of Yahweh will be upon me. I will do my ministry in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in sync with the Holy Spirit of God himself, because Yahweh has anointed me with the Spirit of God to bring good news, to preach the gospel. That's what that means. The Messiah will preach the gospel to the afflicted, God has sent me to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty with this spiritual message. Liberty, that's spiritual liberty, that's freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from eternal death, freedom from the fear of death, freedom from the control of the world's system. That's the kind of freedom. It's a spiritual freedom. Embracing the gospel and having your sins totally forgiven so that you can be right with God, liberated from your sin, and then adopted into the family of God. So this is what the Messiah is going to do. So let's go now uh, and then move forward to Luke chapter 11. And let me read the passage at hand. By the way, we'll probably pick up part two next week. Probably, just in case you're wondering. But this is just too important. 
So that we, we don't want to miss the details. We want to understand the background. Uh, the New Testament uh, was written in light of the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss a huge percentage of what's going on when you read the New Testament. So Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And as I read verses 14 through 28, it all goes together, this narrative. But a lot of different things happen. But it's all knit together. There's one overriding theme that just knits it all together with a beautiful continuity. And we'll talk about that. But here's a little assignment because... um, as we get up and we teach the Bible week after week, whether it's me or any one of our elders and pastors and even some of our guest teachers, whether it's uh, Pastor Ron Procise or Pastor uh, J.R. Cuevas, we have the same attitude and approach to Scripture in terms of our hermeneutic of how we interpret the Bible and our homiletic of how we interpret the Bible. It's, it's specific. It's not random. We're, we're following an objective, limited, finite set of principles on how to approach Scripture. Because we want to get it right when we're reading the Bible. So you, you see it modeled Sunday after Sunday. And maybe unconsciously not even thinking something is being modeled for you. There's specific training in the background regarding this. This isn't how everybody teaches the Bible. I think it's the right approach to how we should be teaching the Bible. Luke wrote 24 chapters. I mean... Started at the beginning and finished at the end, and he wants people who read it to read it in sequence. Just like when you write a letter to somebody, in context. So in light of that, here's a little, I guess, hermeneutical challenge for us all. You ready? Uh, think of these two questions while I'm reading the passage, and then in your own mind, as I read the passage, try to answer the, the two following questions when I'm done. In your own mind. See if you can do this. Don't say anything out loud. Keep it to yourself. If you want to tell me later how you did, that'd be great. So as I'm reading 14 through 28, here's question number one that I want you to come up with an answer at the end. As I read all 14 of those verses, the question is, what is this paragraph or what is this story, this vignette, this pericope, fancy word? What's a pericope? That's a complete unified unit of thought in text or narrative. We can't separate. It's 14 through 28. And then when I read it, when I'm done, I want you to answer this question in your own mind. What is this paragraph about? And I want you to hone it down and distill it to as simple an answer as you possibly can, preferably in two words, because that's what I came up with. Two words, and there's eight eight letters total. So if you can come up with eight letters or less, that is impressive if you get the right answer. If your answer is not a synonym with what I came up with, I'd say, "Uh uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. I don't want you to miss the main point of the passage. The reason I'm doing this is because there's a lot of stuff going on in this short passage. A lot of it is potent. That's why it was such a challenge when I was studying this week. It's like, okay, verse 14, uh, I could do a 50-minute sermon on that one. I am not kidding. And then I got to verse 15. I thought, okay, there's another 50-minute sermon. 16, there's an entire sermon. 17 and 18, that's a three-week series. 
19 through 23, okay, there's a month. 24, there's another sermon. 27 is another, and then 28. It seems completely unrelated. And I thought of an entire sermon, but I can't do that. So it's just, there is this overriding theme on all of these. So let me go ahead and read. Uh, After teaching his disciples to pray, verse 14, Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute, meaning it it couldn't speak, meaning the the man who was demon-possessed could not speak is what that means. The demon, uh, that was part of the consequence of being demon-possessed. The man was unable to speak. If uh, Matthew 12 is a parallel passage, uh, this man was also blind, blind, deaf, and dumb. Anyway, so uh, Jesus is casting out a demon, and it was mute, unable to speak. And when the demon had gone out of the demon-possessed man, the the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test Jesus to try Jesus to trap Jesus were demanding of Jesus a sign from heaven. Verse 17. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste or is ruined, and a house divided against itself collapses, falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons, your leaders, cast demons out? So your leaders will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, Matthew 12 says the spirit of God. Parallel passage. If I cast out demons, if I do a miracle by the finger of God, by the work of God, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than the strong man attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from the strong man all his armor on which he had relied and distributes the plunder of the strong man. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, not finding any. And it says, I will return to my house from where I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it, the demon, goes and takes along seven other demons or spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and they live there in that previous place. And the last state of that man who was demon-possessed becomes worse than the first time he was demon-possessed. Verse 27, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice or yelled out and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you, you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus said to her, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. It's a lot of stuff. 
So let me ask you that question again. In all of that, what would you say? What is, the, what is this paragraph all about? What's the main thing? What is it all about? Uh, don't say it out loud. But maybe you said a miracle. Uh, or maybe you said it was about getting, uh, a demon getting cast out. Or maybe you said, oh, it's about Satan. Uh, those intersect with the truth, but that's not what this passage is about. The, the passage is about, in every verse, every comment, everything Jesus said that is related to and informs the main point of this passage is it's not the miracle that Jesus did, it's the response to the miracle. That's what it's about. And it's about the negative response to the miracle. That's what it's about. The negative response from the lady at the end who sounds like she's given kudos to Jesus. The negative response apparently from the, the, the demon-possessed man who we don't see words here, but I think there's an exhortation or even a mild rebuke from Jesus in this passage to that man. A rebuke to, and uh, response to the answer of some in the crowd, where it says the people saw the miracle and it said they were, they wondered, they were astounded. What does that mean? That means the crowd was seeing this, probably hundreds, maybe if not thousands of people, they saw this unprecedented miracle. They knew this guy, they knew he was uh, demon-possessed. They knew he was deaf and dumb. And they saw a miracle they, they just couldn't believe. And they were stunned. They were in awe. Wow! That's what they were What? Wow! Did you see that? They don't even know what to think. That's what wonder means. They're amazed. They don't know how to interpret it. They need a filter. They need somebody to interpret the sign. See, that's the problem. God is the only one who can give divine revelation to interpret the miracle. What does it mean? Because everybody sees it, everybody's responding, and everybody's responding the wrong way. They're giving illegitimate interpretation to this wonder of wonders. Even the crowd, because that's what Matthew 12 says. There were some in the crowd who wondered, and it says, and they said, they wondered and they said, they asked a rhetorical question, this is not the son of David, is it? Well, is that a good response? It's a question, and it's uncertain. They don't know, and that's been the problem all throughout Jesus' ministry. We've already seen that. We've seen that all throughout the Gospel of Luke. He's doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and saying, I am the Messiah of the Old Testament. I fulfilled the Old Testament. Thus, the Scriptures are fulfilled. Miracle after miracle, miracle after miracle, preaching the Gospel, preaching the good news. Come to me. I am the Savior. I am the only way. They're beneficiaries of these miracles, and the masses and the crowd still cannot figure out who Jesus is, and they get it wrong just about every single time. I am the son of David. I came in fulfillment of the Old Testament. I came in fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, the Davidic covenant. I am the promised one. And they're still scratching their head. Wait, is this, wait, is this the Messiah? Is he the one? So that's what's going on here. So the issue here isn't the miracle. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke doesn't even highlight the miracle. He doesn't, it's like a, a pat, it's a subordinate clause without detail. Look at it again at verse 14. Uh, and as he was casting out a demon. Okay, it's, so it's kind of a participle and it's just modifying something else. It's not even the main point of the sentence. It doesn't tell us who this guy was, what city he was in. Luke does that all the time. Or some of the other gospels will give, it happened in this city and in this town and this was the guy's name. 
And Luke is just, you know, I'm not interested in that information. That's a distraction. As a matter of fact, the miracle's not even the issue. We've seen miracle, Jesus do a miracle since uh, for 10 chapters. We are convinced. We don't need any more miracles. Actually, that's what Jesus says in chapter 12. You've had enough miracles. So the main point isn't a miracle. It's not even Satan, although he's a topic throughout almost the whole thing. The main point of this passage is the response to Jesus' miracle, his unprecedented miracle, his matchless miracle, his miracle that clearly attests according to what we saw in the days of Moses, where God said, I will validate the truth of my sent one, my Messiah, my prophet, by virtue of his authority to do miracles. His miracles were his credentials. It is undeniable. He is from God. That's what Nicodemus said in the night. Yeah, master teacher, um, uh, I know that uh, the other Pharisees there, hopefully they don't see me right now, but I think you're a good, you're a miracle worker. It's not undeniable. You must be from God because nobody can do the miracles you do unless they are from God. So Nicodemus was on the right track. And yet in the story, it is unbelievable that uh, the six or seven different parties listening and observing and watching, come, they see a miracle and they come to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus is. His power, his authority, the source of his power and authority, his identity. How is this possible? How can that be possible? Well, it's because that's the sinfulness of sin, the hardness of heart, our blindness, our short-sightedness. It's, it's all of us. We're all vulnerable and susceptible to this. We can't look down our nose and say, oh, those stupid, idiotic people. That's us. That was Pharaoh. That was people in the days of Egypt. That was the whining Israelites in the desert with Moses after they already saw miracle after miracle after miracle and undermined Moses, complained against God. We do this. This is the hardness of the human heart. It's another thing that Luke is highlighting here for Theophilus. He's writing to Theophilus a dignitary, and I think it's a very long gospel tract. 24 chapters long. And it's just, he's mounting evidence after evidence after evidence of who Jesus is, what Jesus said about himself, the miracles that he did to validate his truth, that he is a representative of God, he is the Messiah of God, he is the God-man, the Savior of the world, Theophilus. And look at the miracles, look at the evidence. It's mounting, it's undeniable. Don't be like these people. Don't attribute this work to Satan or some other cause. It is the finger of God, the spirit of God. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace Jesus as a result. So, let me know later. How'd you do on that? What is this paragraph about? What is this story about? It is about the response to Jesus' miracle. And then, one more question. You ready? What is, if you had to just pick, I know this is not even a fair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, out of those, all those verses, if you had to pick one verse that was the main verse in the passage, pretend you're in my homiletics class or my exegesis class, I would ask this question. I could see me asking this question. All right, guys, pick one verse that is the priority, primary, thematic, overriding verse, the hinge verse in this passage. What would it be? It's pretty clear to me. I hope you get... I hope you get the right answer. Wait, somebody shouted it out. What? Oh, I heard a lot of wrong answers, but I heard the right answer. I heard a lot of wrong ones, but I heard the right answer. It is verse 23. Look at it. 
There's stuff that happens before 28. People say things before, before verse 20, sorry, before verse 23. Jesus says stuff before verse 23, and then things happen after 23. Jesus says stuff. Somebody else says stuff. 23 is the hinge. Here's what Jesus said. What was the sermon about? Say uh, later in the week, wait, what did Pastor Cliff preach about this week? I hope you just remember this. Well, it was something about a story, and it wasn't about the miracle Jesus did. It was the reaction to the miracle. It was the wrong reaction to the miracle Jesus did, and it was one verse that Jesus wanted to communicate. When he said this startling, clarifying, dogmatic, simple, black and white, confrontational, indisputable, universally binding statement about himself, which he was prone to do. Verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. Wow. He who is not with me, I mean, talk about the simplicity and the profundity of that. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What does that mean? He who is not uh, following me in the same purpose and cause for which I came, which was to gather my sheep. That's what he's talking about. To be a savior with the gospel. If you don't support that cause, if you don't affirm that cause, if you don't proactively embrace that cause, then you're against my cause. The reason this statement is so startling is just the wording and the nature of it. He who is not with me is against me. In other words, there's no neutral ground. I don't know if you remember when Paul was preaching in Acts 17 to the pagans and the Athenians and those really intelligent, smart Greek guys. And he preached an entire sermon. It was the gospel message. And it culminated with the person, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he told all of them in the audience. He said, and God, who has uh, for ages past looked over your sins and ignorance, is now asking and demanding that all people everywhere repent. That's what he said. And it's, it's interesting. You read the response in the crowd. There were three responses. Most snarled, sneered, Paul, you're an idiot, Some, the minority, believed. And then there was a third crowd. Um, They were intrigued. That's fascinating. Uh, We'd like to hear that again someday. And they turned around and went on their merry way. So in that story, you had three responses to Jesus. No, you didn't. You had two responses to Jesus. A small minority who embraced the message of Jesus Christ and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior And everybody else categorically, willfully, definitively rejected Jesus Christ. That's what happened. That's what Jesus is saying here. There is no neutral ground. When you are confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, a decision is going to be made and it's going to be one or the other. It is Christ is Lord or he is not. And it doesn't matter if you're passive or claim neutrality or wave the white flag claiming ignorance. You've heard the truth. You are accountable. You are either with me or you are against me. There is no spectrum of unbelievers that, yeah, here's the nice, good uh, unbelievers, and then you go on the spectrum all the way to the satanic ones like Hitler. And, and there's, there's good sinners, and there's good unbelievers, and they're nice, and, and may, they're okay, and maybe they're all right. And, you know, maybe God will graciously let them in at the end because of 
how nice they are. They didn't hurt anybody. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't proactively, overtly reject Jesus Christ. They weren't trying to hurt Christians or shut them down or persecute them or defy the name of Jesus. They had respect for Jesus. They saw Jesus. He, they called him a good teacher. Jesus just shuts that down. No, you're either for me or against me. You've heard it all. You've seen it all. You know my claims. I am the Savior. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. The way is narrow. The way is narrow. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I did not come into this world to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. That's what Jesus said. I will turn members of the household against themselves. Mother against daughter. Father against son. Boy, these are offensive terms. Be, be leery at the end of the last day. Many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, 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 Lord. At the judgment, Lord, Lord. In my lifetime, we called out your name. We did miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. We used your name. We prayed in your name. We went to church. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord. And yet Jesus will give that verdict. I never knew you. It was not legitimate. It was not sincere. It wasn't real. You didn't embrace the truth of the gospel. You didn't bow the knee to me. You didn't call me your Savior and Lord. You didn't recognize your sin. You didn't embrace the gospel. You weren't with me. You were against me. This is a serious message, people. This is the Christian life. This is what the Bible's about. This is who Jesus was. This is, we need verses like this to cut through the fluff and the superficiality that's just rampant in the world. This gives us clarity of thought, doesn't it? For some, it's very disturbing. Yeah, it is. But it's crystal clear, isn't it? Now, I'm not the one making up this stuff. I'm not the one that was preaching this stuff. Jesus was. If we have people here sitting today or watching on YouTube or hear this out in the world, and, oh, this is offensive, and they get upset. I had somebody call, this is years ago, I preached a message, and somebody just heard about it. They weren't even there. They just heard what I said. It was a message like this, and they called and to ream me out on the telephone. I heard what you said, and Jesus was the only way to have it. I was like, whoa, were, were you there? No. Whoa, okay. But yeah, you're right. I said that. You, you quoted the Bible verse correctly. And they wanted to tear my head off. Well, Jesus is the one that said it, and what did they do? They wanted to tear his head off. What did they do? They, they crucified him and killed him. Uh, the Israelites that he came to save and deliver, they're the ones uh, screaming for blood. At his trial before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, some of the very people who got healed by Jesus. And only a few, only a few. And what was Jesus' response? The blessed, merciful Savior. He speaks truth. It is alarming. His truth divides, but it brings clarity. It shows the two ways very clearly. And as he's on the cross, what does the merciful Savior say? Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There's ignorance there, and, and I'm, I'm dying for these very sinners. I'm even dying and absorbing the wrath of God so that some of those who actually put me here on this cross might be saved. That's a gracious Savior, isn't it? Our sins is what put him on the cross. That's why he came. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've heard this verse, you've heard the truth of Jesus, the living God. So you can't hide away, and if you don't know God, you can't hide away into a neutral position. Once you've heard the truth about Jesus, 
Whether you realize it or not, a decision has been made. You either embrace Jesus Christ fully and bow the knee to him as Lord and as king of the universe and even over your very own soul. And he's the only one that can save you by virtue of his perfect life, his death, and resurrection. Or you can reject him in that truth. And someday, sadly, when you breathe your last in this life, instantaneously, consciously, in your spirit, you will be confronted by Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he'll render that sad verdict. I never knew you. Depart from me. You wicked one into eternal fire forever. That doesn't have to be your fate. Embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death on your behalf, beating your breast. And all you have to do is say, God, be merciful to me, sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And God in his grace will respond that moment, instantaneously forgive you of all of your sins and cause you to be born again. That is the grace of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Father, we do thank you for our time together to be with the saints and for your word. Scripture, the Bible, and in particular, the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for preserving this truth um, and the truth about Jesus Christ, our, our blessed Lord, who did say hard things, God, that uh, offends the sensibilities of us sinners. Yet we know it's, it's the truth. And if we believe the truth and know the truth, the truth will set us free. So that's our heart's desire. We just commit this day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.